these verses from Psalm 103. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all those who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Father, we're so grateful that you are a long-suffering, compassionate God. You're the one who knows our being from the root core out, and you understand us. You are our maker. Christ came and took on our flesh to become our Savior. And Father, with faith in your knowledge of us and your care for us, we ask you today to be our teacher, that your word will speak to our hearts and that we will apply the truths to our daily walk, that we will not look at these events as merely events of history, but as circumstances to teach us truth and to enable us to emulate the good and to forsake the evil. Father, I pray that you will guide us today. I pray that you will bless the word as it is proclaimed uh, throughout this campus today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Judges 4, beginning at verse 4, we read this. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. And she said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulon. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Last week, as we looked at this particular passage, we noted that this has some unusual concepts in them in it, one of it being the fact that we have here the mention of a prophetess. And I mentioned to you that the Hebrew word here for prophetess is the female version of the word nabi, which is the word for prophet throughout the Old Testament. So this is not some kind of a, you know, a watered down version. She is a full-fledged prophet, which is unusual. And we noted last week that there are only three other true prophets of God that are specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Miriam, the sister of Moses. Huldah, uh, the wife of Shalom, who was a prophetess in the days of Josiah. And then Isaiah's wife, whom he referred to as a prophetess. What is also unusual about her is that she is the only female Shofat. Throughout the history of the Protestant church, there has been a tendency to belittle the role played by women in the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. Although Deborah was, as we've seen here, only one of four female prophets specifically mentioned 
in the Old Testament and the only female to be a judge or a deliverer that is mentioned in Scripture. Deborah's story demonstrates a very important truth, and I think that is that God will at times use women in positions of leadership that He normally reserves for men. This can be seen illustrated over and over again, particularly in more modern times. And one story that came to my mind recently is the story of Mary Slessor. Some of you probably know of her. She was a turn-of-the-century example of how God will use a dedicated woman to accomplish His will in serving Him in a very difficult land of ministry. Mary Slessor was born in Scotland in the mid-19th century into a very relatively poor family. Her father was an alcoholic, and like many alcoholics, he tended to drink away the family wealth or what little money they did have. And so when she was 11, she had to go to work 12 hours a day in a textile mill in order to earn enough money to feed the family. And even then, she had to hide the money from her father because he would take it and drink it away. While she was working in the mill, she educated herself by learning to read. And in the process of reading, she became acquainted with a country that was very mysterious, of course, to uh, Europeans at that time, which we now know as the country of Nigeria. As a young adult, she worked in the, uh, 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 with missions in the slums of the little town of Dundee where she was living. And then in 1876, she finally got the opportunity to do what she dreamed of doing for 10 or 15 years ever since she first heard of Nigeria, and that was to go to Nigeria and preach the gospel. Now what is interesting about Mary Slessor is that she went at a time when to send a single woman into an overseas work of this type was relatively unusual, and single males were the normal type of missionary sent out along with married couples. Her passion for the Lord's work was so intense that she spent 40 years working in Nigeria. Now, I don't know what you know about Nigeria, but Nigeria is today the largest country in African population. One-seventh of all Africans live in Nigeria. But it's a country of great contrast. You have stinking, well, maybe I shouldn't use that word. You have very hot, sticky jungle, and then you also have parts of the drier north towards the um, Sahel. A land where you have a lot of paganism, as well as, of course, in the north you have um, Islam. In Nigeria, she served as preacher, teacher, nurse, negotiator, nanny, and about everything else you can think of because she was alone working amongst three different major people groups. And what she did was to often divert tribal warfare, rescued women and children from, from ultimate tragedy that was, hemi, uh, was coming their way. And she won many to Christ, and many churches were established through her work. What is interesting is that the, this is not something that happens much anymore, but the British government was so impressed by her that they made her the very first British vicar vice counsel of any colony in the history of Britain. And she served there in Nigeria. And she used a position, of course, to forward the missionary work, which today would be not viewed as uh, something you could do. What is interesting is she worked for 40 years in an area which is often known as part, part of the area, at least, which is known as the graveyard of the white man. And yet God kept her alive and gave her the strength to serve for four decades in that particular area. So in some ways, Mary Slessor, and, and there are numerous others like this, could be viewed as sort of a modern-day Deborah in a way that she, she was used by God to carry out 
his and to advance his kingdom. What is interesting here about Deborah is that we're told that she is the wife of Lapidoth, but we know absolutely that much about that man, <laughs> except that she was his wife. That's all we know. He was the husband of Lapidoth. That's all we know about the man. What is interesting, though, is that Lapidoth, the name, has the root. The root is the word torch. And the Hebrews extenuate from that and, you know, try to imply that in some way he becomes a type of Messiah. But we have no way of seeing how that could possibly be. We don't know anything about the man. Deborah, we're told, served as judge at an area between Bethel and Ramah. Now, if you're in Jerusalem and you go north from Jerusalem along the, the main ridge route, the, you, you'll come first to Gibeah. Then you'll come to Ramah, and then you'll come to Bethel. So between Bethel and Ramah, about a distance of about 10 miles north of Jerusalem was where this woman was carrying out her position as judge. So frequently did she judge from the same spot that the area became known as the palm tree of Deborah. If you go to modern Israel today, you won't find many palm trees in the highlands. A few, but it isn't, they aren't very common in the highlands today, which is where she was for Israel at that particular time. Because she was a woman, she was not, of course, going to be allowed to lead an army that would never have been suffered by the, by the Jews. But because she was a prophetess, she was able to deliver the word of the Lord to the individual whom God had chosen to be the military deliverer of his people. The northern tribes of Israel had been cut off from the southern tribes by Canaanite control of the Jezreel Valley. Again, if you still possess your little map, which I handed out a while back, the Jezreel Valley is up here in the north. The Jezreel Valley goes right out to and empties onto the plain of Akko, the just north of what is Haifa today. And as you go through the Jezreel Valley, and, and, and pass the old fortified city of Bashan, you actually drop down into the Jordan Valley. So it's about the only through area by which you can go from the coast to the Jordan Valley without going up over the, the ridge, which runs north and south through most of the Holy Land. So for the Canaanites to possess that land, this put Israel in a very, very awkward situation. The largest piece of flat land in the entire country of Israel is the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is also known as the Vale of Megiddo. It will later be known in New Testament times as the Plain of Esdraelon. Deborah was judging in the Ephraim, uh, the highlands of Ephraim. She was a long ways, relatively speaking, south of the Jezreel Valley and away from the tribes of Zebulon, Zebulon and Naphtali. And yet she summoned Barak, who lived up there by the Sea of Galilee, to come down to see her to hear what the word of the Lord is. What is interesting is the meaning of the name Barak. It means lightning. In World War II, the Nazis, as they launched their attack into Poland, gave the world the first demonstration of what is known as Blitzkrieg, lightning war. Well, we're about to see the first example of lightning war here, actually. <laughs> the lightning war of Barak against the Canaanites, man whose name meant lightning. But this man was 
told, was, was asked by Deborah to come all the way down to meet her in the Ephraimite highlands. And the idea was that he was going to become the commander of the army of deliverance. The two tribes that are named here from which the, the, the military men will be derived are Naphtali and Zebulon, but we discover from the song of Deborah and Barak that some other tribes participated also, but the bulk of the manpower apparently came from Zebulon and Naphtali. What's interesting is you see Zebulon and Naphtali were supposed to be two of the tribes that possessed most of the Jezreel Valley along with Issachar. And so it was like recovering their own uh, possession and thus the manpower should have primarily come from those two tribes. Barak came. The Bible doesn't say anything about this, but you can interpret from this. The fact that Barak came when Deborah summoned. What does that tell you about Barak and what does that tell you about Deborah? It tells you that Deborah is the prophetess of God and Barak acknowledged that. And so he came when she summoned him to come. Now again, you have to put yourself into the culture of the time. It was not a feministic culture. <laughs> it was not an equality culture. It wasn't a culture where uh, women were thought of on par with men. In the ancient world, women were just slightly above beasts of burden in most cultures. And in the Hebrew culture, hopefully a little higher than that, but never were they viewed as, as people of authority. But Barak obviously saw the hand of the Lord upon Deborah and therefore he came. Now the journey was not short. From Kadesh, near the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, down to the area between Bethel and Ramah, over the road system would have been a journey of about 75 miles. So it was a bit of a hike for Barak. I don't think he came totally alone. He probably came with a few of his uh, men with him. But he did come to hear the word of the Lord from Deborah. And the command was very specific. Take 10,000 men and march to the mountain called Tabor, and I will give Sisera and the Canaanite army into your hands, says the Lord. That was the command. That was the word that Deborah gave to Barak. Mount Tabor is shown on your little map. It's right up here. It's right on the far eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley. It's very prominent. If you're standing in the middle of the Jezreel Valley and, and you look around at the horizon, Mount Tabor is just about the most prominent feature you will see. It's a peak that rises up about uh, 1,850 feet above sea level, so it's not terribly high, but you have to realize the plain of Jezreel is quite low. So it's, it's quite impressive. It's, it's very much uh, almost like a sinusoidal wave on an oscilloscope in shape, you know, whoop, like a bell curve almost. Uh, as far as the shape of the mountain is concerned. So there was where he was supposed to fight, and he knew the mountain well. He had just passed the mountain as he was coming down to visit Deborah. Barak was undoubtedly a brave soldier. Why did Deborah choose Barak? We don't know. We can interpret that maybe it was because God gave her this man's name and she summoned him. Why Barak of all the people? He apparently was fairly well known. He probably had led men in battle before. He was probably a very brave man. However, he knew the odds. He knew the odds were not good because the army of the Canaanites was large and it was 
empowered by 900 iron chariots. Again, as I mentioned to you last time, there isn't any way for us today to very easily compare what that means. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Hungarian revolt which occurred in 1956, but the Hungarian revolt was where the Molotov cocktail first became famous. Molotov cocktail sounds dangerous, but against iron tanks it's relatively harmless. And in the Hungarian revolt of men uh, running around with rifles against tanks and artillery and full-fledged military units, it was a pretty pathetic thing. Well, that's about the relationship this would have been. It'd be like sending 10,000 men against maybe 20,000 men who had 900 Abrams M60 tanks and you had none. Not good odds. And Barack knew the odds were staggering and it would take an absolute miracle to win. Huh? Case in point. But I don't think he got the point right away. Barack's faith in God was not strong enough to just accept the word of God from Deborah and believe it and do it. It's possible he didn't completely trust Deborah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just reading into this because we, we don't really know why it was he said, I will not go unless you go with me. Because her command was for him to go, not for them to go. And he said, I will not go unless you go with me. Given the absurd nature of the command, this is not too hard for us to understand. I think we have to be a little bit sympathetic with Barack. If I were Barack, I'd probably act very much similarly. Uh, are you sure? <laughs> you, you probably remember the cartoon where the guy's hanging over the edge of a cliff on a tree. <laughs> and he says, is there anybody up, up there to help me? And God answers from heaven and says, yes, I'm here to help you. And he says, what shall I do? Let go. <laughs> anybody else up there to help me? <laughs> if you're in Brock's place, what would you do? Now, you knew this woman was a prophetess and you trusted her enough to come 75 miles to visit her and to hear the word. But when the word was what it was, what would your reaction be? What, what would you think? You have to go up against what were obviously impossible odds. It, just like trying to go out there with a rifle and fight tanks. It, it doesn't seem like a very logical thing to do. It seemed, seemed quite absurd. So because of his misgivings, Barack required Deborah to go along as a guarantee. I, I think partly in Barack's mind would have been the thought that this would put her life in jeopardy. Therefore, this would be a good test as to whether this was really what she believed to be the Word of God. Is she willing to put her life on the line? that this is the Word of God through her to Barak. And of course, she is more than willing. She is ready. Uh, she, she doesn't even hesitate to go. Uh, she, she knows that this is what God is leading her to do in this circumstance. Now, given the rarity of prophets altogether and the greater rarity of prophetesses, his doubts are understandable. We have the great advantage of having the whole counsel of God here in front of us. We have the advantage of knowing the end of the story as well as the beginning. He did not. It's possible, and again, I'm just reading this into this. It doesn't say this. But it's possible that he might have viewed her as somewhat of a good luck charm. If I have her along, then God has got to give us the victory. Otherwise, his prophetess will have become a false prophet. And that wouldn't be good for her future. Well, whatever may have been Barak's thinking. I think the scripture seems to indicate that God expected him to act in faith. God expected him to act in faith. 
In verse 9 of this passage, we discover that Deborah agreed to go with him, but she informed him there will be a price to pay. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Because of your lack of faith, you will lose the honor of being the shofat, the deliverer, without modification. In other words, we think of, these, of, the, of the shofatim here as Deborah and Barak. Deborah and Barak. Or if we just think of them as 12 shofatim in the passage, we think of Deborah, we don't even think of Barak. And so what happens is he loses the glory uh, of being up there with Ehud and Othniel and Samson and others and becomes a secondary figure in the story. And not only that, he will lose the glory of actually defeating the enemy personally because another woman will be responsible for bringing an end to Sisera's life. God would prove the trustworthiness of his word by allowing a woman who was not even an Israelite to be the one that he would use to rid Israel of the evil Sisera. And when we get to that story, you might be a little, you know, uh, the Old Testament tells it like it was. And it doesn't tend to water down some of the more tragic stories. It was a different age than today, but nevertheless, God used this woman in a mighty way. Now, there is a credit that goes to Barak here, though. Barak could have said, oh, you mean if I take you, I don't get the glory? My name isn't blazoned on the headlines? My name isn't chiseled in the rock as the great Shofetim? Well, then you stay here and I'll go. No. He put the victory ahead of his honor. To him, it was more important to guarantee that the victory was won than that he received the honor for the victory. That is to Barak's credit. At Kadesh in Naphtali, which is the hometown of Barak, near the southwest end of the Sea of Galilee, Israel gathered in preparation for the impending attack. Now we have a very interesting parenthetical verse, verse 11 of chapter 4. Judges 4, verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the brother-in-law of Moses, probably says father-in-law there, in your, it's, but father-in-law is not correct, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedish. Here we have a little bit of insight into how God works, how God plans ahead to accomplish a particular thing. As I said, this verse is parenthetical. It's inserted so that we will understand the next portion of the story. The Kenites were a tribe or a clan within the greater nation generically known as Midianites. Again, I have to say that we like things, you know, us who live, we who live in, in the uh, culture which is descended from the Greek-Roman way of thinking, we like things to be pew, 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 clearly defined, chronologically put together. But what we discover here is it's really hard to distinctly isolate these various tribes and peoples. They tend to mush together. Midianites and Amalekites and all the other ites tend eventually through time to blend together. 
and, and today to be subsumed within the whole greater world that we often just call Arab. The Kenites were a branch of the Midianites. And Moses first encountered them in Midian. And Moses had married Hobab's sister. Rule, Rule was a priest in Midian. And Moab, uh, Moses married one of Rule's daughters. Let's go back to Numbers 10 for a moment. Numbers 10, verse 29. Then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Rule, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, that's Rule, Hobab is his son, we are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to them, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. Then he, that is Moses, said, Please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be, if you will go with us, it will come about that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. And Hobab did go with Moses as a guide in the wilderness. Particularly was he important in the Transjordanian wanderings. Hobab's clan joined with Israel. We read that. Let me just read the verse for you in the first chapter of Judges, the 16th verse. Then the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. So the Kenite branch of the family, that is Ho the, the Kenites, Hobab's family, Hobab's family, moved into the territory that was given to Israel that they had conquered and moved to the south and lived in, in the Negev area uh, south of Arad. I don't think Israel felt that that was any great loss to allow them to live down there as we talked about before. But one branch of this clan moves north to the Sea of Galilee to live near Kadesh in a place that uh, the scripture calls the Oak of Zananim, which apparently was just a few or maybe a mile or so from Kadesh, just a little bit further away from the, from the Sea of Galilee, from the lake there. So Heber, who is a descendant of Hobab, who was the son of Reuel, who had been Moses' father-in-law, takes his family and he moves up here to Kedesh. Now, what does he do that for? Well, we aren't told. It just says he does this. But we know from this account why he does it. He doesn't do it because he knows this, but God moves him for the specific purpose that he will, his wife will play a role in the events which transpire in this particular passage. The Kenites were a people that, at least in, the, in, in terms of Heber's family, must have been fairly wealthy and powerful because we're told uh, here later on in the passage that Jabin, king of Hatzor, Sisera's boss, had actually made a treaty or an agreement with Heber. Now, why would he bother making an agreement with just one guy? Well, he apparently was a clan leader who had a fairly, uh, was fairly wealthy and had a pretty large following. So he was almost like an ally, or, or at least a treaty had been made with, uh, with Jabin. But what is interesting, we will discover, is the Kenites were naturally late, uh, um, um, sympathetic to Israel. Therefore, whatever role they play is going to be pro-Israel, not pro-Canaanite. 
And that's exactly what happens here. What is interesting further is that the town Kedish means sanctuary. The name means sanctuary. Now, when Sisera, later in the story, flees from the battle, he flees towards Kedish. Whether he is seeking that as a sanctuary for any reason or not, we don't know. But it's very possible that Kedish, the name is used because there may have been a great Canaanite sanctuary there. Or more likely, it was a Levite city of refuge. It was one of the Levite cities of refuge for this region. Hence the name Sanctuary or Kedish. Reading at verse 12. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera called uh, together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Herosheth Agoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not even one was left. Barak obediently mustered 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulon with a few other auxiliaries from a couple, three of the neighboring tribes as we see in the fifth chapter. He then marched the 10 to 12 miles southwest from Kedish to Mount Tabor. And he took his men up probably to the top of Mount Tabor, and there they camped, waiting for the day of the battle. Now, one of the nice things about being on top of Mount Tabor is you can see a very long ways from up there. And they would know when Sisera was coming, long before Sisera could probably even sight or spot the Israelite camp. Why did he go to Mount Tabor? Well, because God said go to Mount Tabor, which, you know, that's an act of obedience, right? It's very, very important here. How did Sisera find out? Well, today, of course, we're always hearing about spies. Well, there were always have been spies. Spies everywhere. And you don't gather 10,000 men together without somebody seeing it happen, you know. Because when Barak went back to Kadesh and set out the call, he didn't just go, and 10,000 men came running, you know, obviously. The message had to travel out all through the tribal area. It took days. It took weeks. For the word to get out, for the men to say, well, am I going, uh, is this a good thing to do or, or not, you know, to try to find some kind of weapons, maybe go and find the weapons that have been put in, put in hiding so that the Canaanites wouldn't find them, and gather together to Barak. Now, what this tells us is, first of all, that Barak was a man of some prestige. If I were to walk out here on the street and say, I'm Don. All those who would like to join at a great rebellion against the government, join me. Well, you know, probably a few strange people might come along. (laughs) But the bulk of the people are going to say, you are too strange for words, man. But obviously, for 10,000 men to come to Barak, this man was a known leader. He was a man who had been successful before. He was sort of a Norman Schwarzkopf type guy, I suppose you could say. So the 10,000 men came and they joined. 
And now they are encamped on the top of Mount Tabor. And Sisera has heard the word. And I think Sisera viewed Barak's movements as both a threat and an opportunity. A threat and an opportunity. It was a threat because obviously it was a rebellion against uh, Canaanite constituted authority, against Can uh, Jabin's rule. But he saw it as an opportunity to wipe out Israelite resistance once and for all. Once we crush this Israelite army and destroy these 10,000 guys, the rest of Israel will totally become dispirited and they will be putty in our hands forever and ever. Well, you know who was inspiring Sisera? God. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what's going to happen, right? Well, Mount Tabor is a relatively smooth mountain. It, it, it's not rugged. It doesn't have a lot of rock sticking out of it. Uh, it's pretty smooth. You know, I, I wouldn't want to just roll down it, you know, but it, 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 uh, it's relatively smooth. But it is relatively steep also. Too steep for chariots. Case in point, too steep for chariots. What this does, of course, is give Israel the advantage of elevation. One of the things you discover if you ever study anything about warfare is that elevation always gives you an advantage. To shoot down on somebody is much more advantageous than shooting up on somebody. You know? All you have to do is get in a snowball fight and you're above and the other person's down. Woo, you have all the advantages because the other person has a hard time getting the snowball even up to you where you're just doo, doo. And so it would be for Israel coming down on the enemy, shooting from above with all of your arrows and all of your spears being gravity-assisted. Gravity makes a big difference. You're probably aware of this, that like somebody shoots a gun up in the air. Well, the bullet comes to a stop at one point, you know. But then as it comes back, it accelerates. And many people have been killed with bullets just falling out of the sky. Aircraft fighting uh, overhead, shooting at each other, bullets flying down from the sky, been very damaging through history. So the gravity assist would be a great advantage to Israel. Now, how in the world did Sisera get his military force together? Sisera wasn't just sitting at Harosheth with 900 chariots all lined up in neat rows here, you know, ready to go to battle. His chariots were probably dispersed around the, at least the Jezreel Valley and, and from Harosheth and other places. So we had to send out a call, get all my chariots together, get all my forces together. So it's, it's very probable that Barak and his forces cooled their heels for a little while on the top of Mount Tabor up there, waiting for Sisera to get his army together and to attack from Megiddo or near Megiddo where they actually put the army together. This is a battle of Armageddon. There have been many battles of Armageddon, you know? We, we keep thinking, uh, we use the term Armageddon as the final battle of all history. There have been many battles of Armageddon, you know, of, of the Valley of Megiddo, of the Mountain of Megiddo. And, and this one was staged from Megiddo in the attack towards Mount Tabor. The last, last battle of Armageddon occurred in 1917. It was the British against the Turks. The British defeated the Turks at Armageddon, that Valley of Megiddo. <laughs> Verse 13 seems to be saying that Sisera gathered all his forces from the surrounding countryside and then from Megiddo or near Megiddo, he confidently marched across the Jezreel Valley to what to him was going to be a cakewalk. 10,000 Israelites with at the very best spear, swords, and, and bows and arrows, and we have 900 iron chariots. 
Israel does not even possess one single chariot. Later on in history, when Sennacherib got ready to attack Jerusalem, he told to he said he sent a message to Hezekiah. He said to Hezekiah, "I'll give you two thousand horses if you can find two thousand men to put on them." That, of course, was a slam against Hezekiah because this man was coming with an army of 185,000 men. And I think Sisera had the same attitude. You guys are toast, to put it in the modern vernacular. And, and Sisera moved to the attack with great confidence. I mean, it was almost like a party, I think, for them as they rolled to battle. This is going to be a turkey shoot. Overconfidence will play a big role. God will use it, and Israel will have the victory but we will look at it next week.